0: I'm Steph, I'm Kim, and And this is Solved, Unsolved, or Spooky. Hey, True Crimers, how are we all? Hey, everyone. Hope everybody's doing really well. How are you, Kim? Good. How are you, mum? I'm amazing. (laughs) I just spent all of our savings on new microphones. New windscreens, new earphones and all new cables. Hopefully that'll be good then. So hopefully we will have them for our next episode and hopefully we'll sound a lot better. Hopefully. Because not editing is a struggle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. Sorry if you hear barking. Yeah, it's just a crazy voice. Okay. All right. Well, that's all I've got. So it's your story. Yeah, my story today, and there's just no stories out there that aren't horrific. So a trigger warning? Definitely a trigger warning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's any out there. I was going to say, we kind of like need one for every episode.
0: Yeah. So today's episode includes physical and sexual assault, bestiality and murder. So today I'm covering this terrible story of Anita Cobby. This horrific crime happened when I was just 17 years old and I believed the world to be a fairly safe place. But I was about to find out that demons walk amongst us, monsters with no conscience and no remorse, and that any of us could be taken at any time, tortured and murdered. Oh, my God, there's a white tip on my laptop. (laughs) Um, Mum, need something to get it with.
1: Um, I don't know. You don't touch shoes or socks. Oh, oh, my phone. Kill it. With your phone. I'm trying. Uh, okay, I squished him, but oh my god, oh my god, my computer. <laughs>
0: Sorry, if you're still listening to this. We don't know if you've gone. You may have gone. Because- uh, no, oh, no, we're still going. It's still happening here. Okay, continue. All right, the white tip spider has now been killed. Mostly. Okay, we're good. And that any of us could be taken at any time tortured and murdered. At the time, I lived about an hour's drive away from Blacktown, which is where the crime was committed, which was a bustling and enormous place compared to where I lived.
1: (laughs) That's an understatement. Back in
0: 1986, Blacktown was a fast-growing region. It had a reputation for violent crimes, high unemployment rates and fast-escalating crime rates, and murders occurred way too frequently mm. so the stats back for 1986 were uh, around 99 murders in a year oh really yeah and you know how usually it's it's a family member or a known person yeah there was something like 20 percent of them mm. that were perpetrators not known to them. oh a,
1: stranger yeah
0: which is quite horrific That's, yeah, yeah, highly unusual it is so i think it was just like a really really bad bad mm. place i don't know i can't picture
1: back then yeah because i was Not nowhere born.
0: near me being alive at 9 a.m on tuesday the 4th of february 1986 a farmer noticed his cows all milling around in the oh, one no. spot oh no i know this bit no it's so awful this was unusual and it caught his attention mm-hmm. the farmer left his farm to go to the cattle auction at around nine thirty that morning and he returned back home two hours later as he was driving in the driveway, he glanced over to the paddock that he called the boiler paddock and he once again noticed that the cows were all standing together. Later in the day, he noticed them still all standing in the same area and having never seen this behavior before, mm. he decided to get on his motorbike oh, and God. go and check
1: it, and it so out. So you always know when your animals are acting weird.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. And cows are super sensitive creatures. They
2: too, are. Could so. you
0: imagine those poor creatures? Mm. And the horrific scene that he found would be etched in his mind for all eternity. What he found was a female body. She was naked and laying face down in the grass and dirt. Farmer left immediately and called the police. The police response was incredibly fast. Good. And they arrived on the scene within minimal time.
2: Mm.
0: Police questioned the farmer. They asked if he'd seen or heard anything out of the normal. And the farmer had but he could not remember if he'd been woken on Saturday night or the Sunday night mm. when he'd been woken up by a loud screams coming from the direction of Rean Road, which is near his property. I think it actually borders onto his property.
1: Yeah, I think it was just
0: off the road yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Rain Road was named after his family members as they had been a part of the community for many, many years. Their family was known and respected for their dairy farming in the region. He said he had not thought to contact the police about the screaming, as this was fairly normal activity in the area. Mm. Well, we,
1: you think it's teenagers being silly, weren't mm. having a good time.
0: Weekends would often be loud, and packs of teenagers would often frequent the area. The road was frequently used as a lovers' lane, as it was narrow, tree-lined, and a secluded area. I probably would have used it. I, I mean, would not. <laughs> <laughs> where they could let steam off and party, or where they could come for a makeout session. <laughs> okay, uh,
1: definitely different to
0: my teenage years. He thought the screams were just teenagers partying and having fun, so he simply rolled over and went back to sleep. Mm. And he didn't think any more about it until he was being questioned by police. I imagine finding that. Ah, oh, be know. horrendous. Just no,
1: especially if you. are you like not prepared for it. Like yeah. you just like, oh, what are my cows doing? Maybe you thought he had a newborn baby yeah, or like a, a calf
0: which yeah. is what you usually think. What you would usually expect to find. Mm. Detective Sergeant Graham Rosetta was on leave when he got the call that there was a crime scene requiring his attention. So he dropped everything and immediately headed to Rain Road, the awful crime scene. The other detective, who would be tasked with finding the perpetrator of the crime was Detective Sergeant Ian Kennedy, who was with the Homicide Squad. Together they would build a team that would find the horrific answers that would be shared with Australia, rocking the world as we'd all known it until then. Kennedy was the lead investigator in the case with a strong background in homicide and together they worked tightly with the forensic police and the medical examiner. The body was found almost seven metres away from the fence line and the ground showed evidence of much activity. Detective Rosetta noticed many details that will stay with him for the rest of his life. However, the one thing that captured his attention the most was the victim's eyes. Mm. Rosetta is quoted as saying, The look in the girl's eyes, I will never forget those dead eyes. You could see she had gone through hell. You could see it. It was obvious to everyone present that she had suffered greatly.
1: So you know what? I have actually memorised that quote. Obviously. I know exactly what, you know what I mean? Yep. I've yep. heard that so many times I know exactly
0: Yeah, that yep. quote now. It's horrible. It's just so horrible. Crazy. None of the victim's clothing or items were found at the scene. However, the perpetrator had missed the wedding band that was still on the finger of the female's body. This was noticed by detectives who took the band into the chain of evidence immediately. What they noticed about the ring was that this was no normal wedding ring. Mm. This was a unique style of ring that was made up of three individual strands of gold. You know what they are? I know they were like all different
1: gold. Yeah. It was like white gold and yellow yeah, gold. gold yeah.
0: And rose gold. Mm. Yep. Yeah. All interwoven into a beautiful band known as a Russian band. Kennedy returned back to the Blacktown police station and he. First thought was to check the missing persons file. I've got to be honest, the cops in this case mm. are truly incredible. You'll notice throughout the entire investigation, absolutely amazing police work. Mm.
1: Yeah. Actually, there some things in it. I was like, oh, it's really smart.
0: Really yeah, incredible. really, really smart. Yeah, Really very impressive. To see if there was anyone reported missing that matched what they had found. A match was quickly found. Mm. The report had been filed by Gary Lynch, the father of a missing 26-year-old daughter who had not returned home from work. Gary had left a photograph of his daughter with the report and Kennedy knew immediately that this was her. Mm -hmm. You'd only have to see her beautiful hair. Oh, she was absolutely gorgeous. Ah, she was And she was a beautiful person. Yeah, she was just a standout. Her name was Anita Cobby. Kennedy made the call to Gary Lynch and requested a meet-up. Kennedy and another detective organised to meet up at the Lynch home so that Gary could view the ring. Mm. How would you be? Mm, no. Like your daughter's missing, the cops are coming to talk to you. It will be so scary. Mm. It'll be so awful. Be a nightmare. Ugh. Upon arrival at the home, Gary and Grace Lynch and her parents and Catherine Lynch, her sister, were waiting with desperation for the police to arrive. The group all discussed Anita and the situation and detectives learned the following. Anita was born on November 2, 1959. She was the oldest of the two daughters and Catherine thought very highly of her older sister who she saw as a role model. Catherine and Anita spent much time together. They were a very, very close family Mm. and Anita was a kind, generous and caring soul. The family shared much about Anita and detectives learned that Anita loved shopping with her younger sister and that she had a love for drawing. She was so passionate about this that she could draw for hours and hours. Her father, Gary, was also a graphic artist, and it seemed that they shared their love for the arts. That's nice. It is nice, Mm. hey. She also has a lot in common with her mum. That's good. They were just so, so close.
2: Yeah.
0: Anita had attended Evans High School in Blacktown and she was a dedicated student who always strived hard, leading her to be a top student. Then in 1979, Anita entered a beauty pageant, where she was the winner of the pageant and crowned Miss Western Suburbs. Anita could have embraced this lifestyle and become a model, as she possessed incredible grace and both physical and inner beauty. However, Anita had a greater calling. She had an empathy for others and enjoyed helping and caring for them so she chose to follow in her mother's grace's footsteps and decided to become a nurse. How beautiful is that? Mm-hmm. Anita started her training that year, moving to the nurse's quarters at Winston Lodge, which was only a short distance from the hospital in central Sydney. This is where Anita met John Cobby. John was three years older than Anita, and their love for nursing destined them to meet. John Cobby was not as interested in schooling as Anita had been. (laughs) However, he did well enough and his grades were considered acceptable. When John left school, he, like many, didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. So John and his girlfriend at the time took a gap year, as many Australians do after finishing high school. I'm sorry if you can hear Dexter. He was just
1: making noise.
0: Sorry, Dexter's being very vocal. And they embraced their desire to travel the country. They did this for a year, with John working odd jobs and surfing most of the time. John's family were ready to relocate, and John followed his family back to the Central Coast. John was pretty tight with his family as well, Mm. which was really good. He spent the first three weeks looking for employment. He quickly found a job at the Gosford Hospital in the laundry, but this was hard work and very repetitive, and John grew quickly tired of it. So he applied for a better paid and higher up position of awardsman. The manager told John that he was not big enough to be awardsman because he's only little in stature. However, he did have good enough grades to apply to be a trainee nurse. Lucky for John, a few days later, a position became available and John was successful in attaining it. John embraced his new path and grew to love nursing. He found it to be the right fit for him. However, One day he had an argument with his boss, so he quit, and he decided to go back to travelling, working, surfing around the country. John did this for a while and then decided it was time to embrace nursing again, and he applied for a position in Sydney Hospital, where he was successful. This was when John moved into the Winston Lodge, and a twist of fate would facilitate Anita and John's past crossing. John, aged 23, first saw Anita, who was 20 at the time and John recalls the first time that he laid eyes on her. I could see these ringlets of hair everywhere. God, she was beautiful, and I thought far too good for me. John was convinced that she would never be interested in a guy like him, so he started asking around about her. His digging made things worse as he found out <laughs> that she'd been Miss western suburbs. This cemented his thoughts that she would never be interested in him. John, believe- John <laughs> believed that Anita would not even notice him let alone look twice. However, one day they started talking and Anita seemed to want to continue the conversation. This was when John asked Anita out and to John's surprise, she responded with a yes. A few days later, they would go out on their first date to a Lebanese restaurant called The Prophet. They had their second date at The Prophet the next night and soon became regulars at the restaurant. John and Anita frequented the restaurant that often that they became friends with the manager, Michael Sowry, who said the couple were smitten with each other. Anita and John's relationship flourished, and a little over a year into the relationship they decided to get married. The big date was set for March 27, 1982, and Anita, adding to all of the excitement, made the announcement that she was pregnant. Both of them were so excited at the thought of the wedding and the birth However, only a few weeks later, Anita sadly lost their baby, devastating them both as they both wanted children. Their wedding, however, still went ahead, with John saying it was just your typical Australian wedding, nothing pretentious, just two people in love. They chose not to have a honeymoon and used their savings instead to rent a property to move into. The unit was close to John's family home, but this was good for Anita as she had a close relationship with John's mother and sister. She would visit Terry, John's mother, and Sister Gaynor often and spend time with them. Anita continued her work at the Sydney Hospital and her reputation for being an empathetic, caring and kind nurse was known by all. It was said that she took the time to get to know her patients and really cared about them. John, however, worked as a temp nurse where he would work in a range of hospitals, This was because the pay was better. Anita and John still frequented restaurants and concerts, and because John loved the ocean and yachts, they bought a sailing boat, where John could enjoy sailing and Anita could enjoy sitting on the deck, soaking in the sun with the two dogs that they owned. In 1984, the couple made some life-changing decisions. This was because John was becoming a little restless. He was always interested in the idea of training horses. And he had a cousin in Coffs Harbour who would help him make this dream come true. John asked Anita if she'd consider making the move to Coffs Harbour, which was over 500 kilometres away, and she was only too happy to follow her husband. John was very motivated to make this dream come true. He worked overnight as a nurse and during the day he trained three horses while Anita was also working as a nurse. This new routine became daily life for the couple. And a year after moving to Coffs Harbour, John placed a bet on one of his horses, landing him a win of $10,000. I know, hey, must be a good horse trainer. John asked Anita what she wanted to do with the win, and she said she wanted to travel. So off they went, they headed to the United States, First Los Angeles, then New York, before going to Italy. Hmm. They travelled till they ran out of money and then had to return home back (laughs) to their normal lives. By mid-1985, they were back at work and John was happy because he spent years Hmm. travelling and having a great time and now he just wants to settle down.
2: Hmm.
0: However, Anita wanted to keep (laughs) travelling. John was ready to start a family. But Anita wanted to see what was out there in the big world. She had a taste of it and just wanted to keep going. Mm. This caused a bit of a rift with the couple, and they both realized that they wanted different things. So they decided to take a break from each other to see how things went. John and Anita both moved back with their respective families, and they spoke to each other every day. Yeah. They either saw each other or phoned each other every day. Six weeks after the separation, so it was a new new separation, Anita was having breakfast with Grace and told her that she'd be home late as she was going out to dinner with friends in Redfern after work. The next morning, Grace checked in on Anita to find that she was not in her room and that her bed had not been slept in. This did not, however, raise any concerns as Anita did not always come home. And she was an adult. Yeah, she's an adult. And after discussing this with Gary, they thought nothing of it. Mm. until that afternoon when they received a call from the Sydney Hospital. Anita's boss was looking for her as she hadn't shown up for her 1.30 shift. This was very unusual for the dedicated and reliable nurse. Gary and Grace became immediately concerned that something had happened to her Mm. because she always told someone where she was and she would never miss work. At 6.30pm on the 3rd of February, Gary Lynch reported Anita as a missing person. He was carrying a photo of his beautiful daughter whilst Grace was at home calling all of Anita's friends, trying to locate her. At 8pm, Grace called John Cobby at his mother's house. Terry, John's mother, answered the phone and she passed the message on to John who was at his and Anita's favourite restaurant. John was there having dinner with his father and a friend. John called Grace back immediately and she asked him if he was with Anita, to which he responded no. He said that the last time he'd spoken to Anita was on the day before. He'd asked Anita if she wanted to spend time together after work, but Anita already had dinner plans and she'd told her parents that she'd be home after dinner, so declined his offer. I did read somewhere else Mm. uh, later that he'd also offered to pick her up from work that day as well. John knew straight away that there was something wrong. He knew Anita and that she would not just disappear and not tell anyone where she was. Mm. He left the restaurant immediately, dropped his friend back home, and drove towards Anita's house, buying a bottle of scotch on the way. When he got to Anita's home, he poured, John poured a scotch for both himself and Gary and started asking what had been done to find her. Who have you rung? Who have you called? Have you called friends? Have you called hospitals? This was grating on Gary's nerves as he felt he was being second-guessed and been accused of not doing anything to find Anita. After a while, John did not feel welcome in the house as the air was thick with worry and tension. It would be a horrible time. i oh, it be so hard. The relationships were already strained and this was making things worse, mm-hmm. so John left the home. The next morning, John woke up and got ready to take a previously planned trip. He'd organised to meet Anita at Shelley Beach on the Central Coast. This was about 100 kilometres north of Sydney. Gaynor, John's sister, had booked a place for them to celebrate her birthday and John was ex- expecting to see both of them when he got there mm. and Anita with an explanation of where she'd been. He hoped that they could spend the quality time together that they planned. John was driving on his way to Shelley Beach, thinking about Anita and listening to the radio, remembering how they would sing along to songs on the radio especially to Madonna and Cold Chisel. The music and memories were suddenly cut short by a news broadcast. John heard the unbelievable words, a naked body of a woman has been found in a paddock at Prospect in Sydney. Police are yet to identify her. Imagine that. That would be horrifying because you'd automatically think, oh, oh my God. gosh, yeah, like, yep. what if it's her? Yeah, it has to be her. Like, Yeah. you. John immediately put the pieces together in his head and realised that his fantasy of Anita and Gaynor chatting happily was gone. All he could think of that this poor girl could be Anita. John frantically found an emergency phone and called Anita's parents. It took a while for the operator to put him through as John was yelling and incoherent. You could just imagine. Yeah, you'd be be in a horrific state. Finally, he was connected and the person who answered the phone was a stranger who said, you have to get back here, John. Oh, God. So there was obviously a police yeah. officer. John dropped the phone and got straight back into the car and headed for Anita's home. John arrived at the home in Blacktown, walked up to the back door and broke down. Falling on the step, crying, John gathered himself and went inside the house. Grace, Gary, Catherine and her husband were already at the house with two detectives. The detectives had already shown the Lynch family the Russian band. Catherine said that it couldn't be Anita's Hmm. because it had rust on it. Oh, it was blood. Yep. However, the detective pointed out that it wasn't rust, that it was in fact blood. John was shown the band and immediately recognized it as Anita's. Detective Kennedy asked John to identify Anita's body and he said that he couldn't. He just just physically couldn't do it. Hmm. Grace said she would do it as she was a nurse and she'd seen hundreds of bodies. However, Kennedy would not allow this. He could not let her see her daughter's body in the state it was in. So the only other person who could do this was Gary, who accepted. At Westmead, Gary laid eyes on his daughter and his legs buckled. The detectives caught him before he fell. He gave a positive identification and said, I wish I could tell you it's someone else's daughter, but it's not, is it? Kennedy was brutally honest with Gary, telling him this was just the beginning, just one step in the long road ahead, mm. and that the media would be surrounding them. That would just be awful. Yeah. Kennedy asked Gary to talk about Anita as much as possible and to use the media to their advantage. He also advised Gary that everyone would need to be questioned in relation to this awful crime. Mm.
1: Well, you can't rule anyone out till you've interviewed him and them and questioned
0: them. Um, no. Alibis. John Cobby was the prime suspect.
1: You know what they say,
0: the husband husband did did it. (laughs) And John was asked to attend the police station for questioning with Kennedy. John had no idea what to expect, but went along anyway. Mm. They sat down in a small interview room, and the questioning started. At first, simple ones about their early life together, their marriage, and then their separation. But then it got into the harder ones. He was asked where he was on the night of the murder, And the day after responding Mm. with at home on the evening and out to dinner the following day where he first found out about Anita's disappearance. Kennedy was pushing John about the separation, asking if it was rocky. John responded that they were trying to work it out and get back together. Kennedy asked, did you kill her? John felt dizzy Mm. with the constant and continual barrage of questions being thrown at him. He stopped answering the questions. As his head was spinning, he was then pushed into a wall and being accused of murdering Anita. And his answer was, yep. I must have done it. I did it. I must have. So sad. There had also been a tip-off earlier by someone telling police to look into John Cobby. And two of Anita's nurse friends had told police that John would do anything to get Anita back at all costs. They told the police that he was ringing her all the time. Yeah, they made, he was super clingy. Yeah, they made out it was kind of like. Yeah. Threatening behaviour. And they said that Anita might have been having an affair with another nurse, which is, of course, all proof later. Mm -hmm. All of this made John the number one suspect. There were multiple factors pointing to John, but there were a number of things that didn't add up. Mm -hmm. According to the forensic reports and the coroner's report, there was definitely more than one perpetrator, and this didn't look like a crime of passion. No way. So detectives kept their minds open. Twenty investigators who were working the case started trying to piece together what had happened on the night that Anita went missing. They started digging around and found that Anita and two friends went to the restaurant after work on the night that she went missing. They left the restaurant at 8.30pm and Lynn drove Anita to Central Station so that she could catch the train home. On parting, they said their goodbyes and that they would see each other the next day. That same night, her friend Lynn had woken up in a sweat from a nightmare. Mm. In the nightmare, she was having the same conversation with Anita, but this time she heard Anita say, no, I am dying, Lynn. She How believed it was an omen. It, was, it had to be Anita. How crazy. It had to be her body, like her soul leaving a body trying to tell somebody. That's just crazy, hey? It's horrible. Back at the police station, there was a newbie police officer doing all that he could to help. He wanted to do as much as he could as he'd gone to school with Anita. No. I know. You'd feel so, you know, you have to. you feel attached. Yeah. Part of it. Mm. He started going through all the phone calls that had come into the station on the evening of the murder and noticed a call from a 13-year-old boy. This 13-year-old boy is a total hero, mm. absolute hero. There's a lot of heroes in this and and there's a lot of places where this could have been turned around. The boy had called the station to report a lady being dragged into a car. He and his sister were looking out of their window and witnessed this. They lived on Newton Road, which was between Anita's house and the Blacktown Railway Station. So it was obvious mm. that if she was walking home from the railway station, yeah. it was highly likely to be her.
1: Well, was it, um. Wasn't she going to call her father or something? But like the, the phone
0: didn't work. The phones were busted. Yeah. And then
1: she just decided she'll just walk.
0: Yeah. Police were starting to think that she'd been abducted from the train station, and detectives decided to follow up the lead that looked very promising. John, 13, and Linda, 14, they were brother and sister, answered the door to police who had come to question them. Linda told them she'd heard screams coming from the street so she had looked outside to see a dark-haired lady being pulled into a car. She was fighting and trying to break free. Linda called out to John, who ran outside, but it was too late. He ran across the road like he Mm. did everything he could to try and stop it. The car was already speeding off in the direction of Reen Road. John then ran inside and called the police. It was about this time that their older brother Paul and girlfriend Lorraine pulled in the driveway. Linda and John told them what had happened. And what they had seen. Linda had told them it was a dirty white car, and John had described it as a Holden sedan, white with a grey undercoat, and that it had taken the girl and headed in the direction of Rean Road. When Paul and Lorraine arrived at the secluded spot on Rean Road, they saw two cars. There was a red sedan and a car exactly like John had described. Paul and Lorraine checked out the car. They actually got their flashlight out, checked right into it saw nothing unusual, and there was no one in the car, so they went home. If they'd have stayed, Mm. this would have all changed.
1: Well, maybe.
0: So sad. A patrol car also drove along Rain Road but saw nothing. Mm. There were other witnesses. The neighbour across the road from Linda and John had heard the screams. Stephen saw the dirty white car speeding off with its headlights off. He looked across the street and saw John, who said they had taken her. Stephen ran next door and alerted another neighbour. They tried to follow in their car but lost lost the car yeah. quickly. So there were so many people. There were, yeah, so many people. So incredible. Another lady next door had seen three to four men taking a lady off the street but could not identify her as being Anita. Anita would normally call her father for a lift home from the station. However, she was unable to as the 12 phone booths had all been smashed on the, this particular evening. It's crazy, eh? Like what kind of losers do that t- type of thing? Mm-hmm. If that hadn't happened in the first place... Oh, she would have just been okay. It's just crazy.
1: Yeah.
0: Gary was sure that Anita would have walked home. Anita became the only face on the TV and magazines. The media was in a frenzy, and this was the only topic of conversation everywhere. She was described by everyone who knew her as a living angel. The police were inundated with calls and tip-offs. Everybody wanted this solved as soon as possible, as there was terrible fear throughout the community. People started brandishing weapons just to leave their houses and women never went anywhere alone. John Laws, who was a very high-profile radio announcer at the time, who never shied away from the truth, and he was appalled by the entire situation and felt that the public had the right to know what was walking amongst us. Mm. And he shared over the airways a Nietzsche's autopsy report in all of its graphic detail. Oh wow. There were a lot of people angry about that.
1: I mean, there's no ink but then there's I think that's probably a little bit too far a little bit like
0: too much. Kids could be listening to Well that. they were. It was over the, the news in the morning where kids <laughs> being taken to school and not the greatest idea. No one knows how it was leaked to the media. Even after intense investigation, the leak was never found. A reward of fifty thousand dollars was offered and doubled only days later. With no direct leads Police decided to reenact Anita's last trip on the train. Mm, I thought this was clever. Yeah. There's a lot of really mm. clever stuff. They got police officer Debbie Wallace to dress in clothing similar to Anita's. Debbie started at Central Station at 9.12pm. She got onto the train to Blacktown. She walked in the last steps of Anita and figured out that Anita must have taken an earlier train. So to, for her to have been abducted, yeah. they figured out what train she would have, she would have had to catch mm. the eight thirty or something like that train. The next day was Anita's funeral, and she was celebrated for her kindness and compassion and for her loving of life. Mm. Grace and Gary were able to remain composed throughout the ceremony. However, John was not. John had to be held upright during the service, and when her coffin was carried from the church, he yelled, don't take her away from me. Please don't take her away. John was sedated Mm. and did not cope with it at all. He had to be carried out. John by this stage was ruled out as a suspect and everything he said had checked out. Mm. No, he definitely didn't do it. He'd never been a big drinker and found drugs utterly repulsive, but all that changed the moment he learned about Anita's death. After the funeral, John said all he wanted to do was feel hurt and die. He soon turned to alcohol and drugs as a way of dealing with his loss. The next day, the February the 11th, Detective Rosetta was told about a tip-off, that the car that they suspected was involved in the abduction was stolen by three men. Mm-hmm. Mm. They were John Travis, Michael Murdoch, and Leslie Murphy. He was also told that the vehicle was stolen on the 2nd of February, which is the night of the murder. Mm. Bit of a coincidence. Bit of a coincidence. This along with the many calls suggesting that they look into John Travis was well and truly pointing them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Travis was from, from a poor family, as were the Murphys and Murdochs. They all came from similar backgrounds. Yeah. He was 18 years old and from a town called Dunside. He'd been subjected to physical abuse for most of his life, and he was known for his heavy dr- drug use and violence against others. Travis had previously been charged for a rape against another man in Western Australia.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: where he'd held a knife against the victim's throat as he perpetrated his act. Detective Kennedy had also heard many rumours about Travis, one that stuck out.
1: I think I know what (laughs) you're going to say. Is it the most disturbing thing ever?
0: It is disturbing. Okay. Was it on his 18th birthday, John Travis? I've read two different things, actually. I've read that he raped a sheep and I read that he raped a goat. I've heard the sheep one a lot. In front of his mates. With a knife to its neck the whole time. (sighs) And while in the filthy act of raping the sheep, he slit its throat, then cooked it and ate it. I have no words for that. John Travers was known as a ringleader. Michael Murdoch, one of the weak little followers, was aged 18. Les Murphy, another cowardly follower, was aged 22. And the three of them were always together. On Sunday, February the 2nd, the trio went to a party and they left the party disappearing for a long time. When they got back to the party, Hours later, none of them could offer the same story as to where they'd been. The police kept this lead quiet so that they could get them before they fled town. An investigation was really ramping up and they now worked with informants and undercover cops. The teams were surveilling all three homes by this stage, wanting to pounce. Les Murphy appeared at Travers' home and this gave the police a lead on the others. The task force broke into two groups one led by Kennedy and the other led by Rosetta. The two teams headed to two different homes and used a tactical response team for backup. Kennedy's team headed towards Doonside, where they broke down the door with a sledgehammer. <laughs> I love the power. Inside, they found Les Murphy hiding inside. He did not resist arrest hmm. and he did not ask for a lawyer. They found a stolen car, but it was a different one. No, just another stolen car, you know? Yeah, a half dozen. Rosetta, 15 kilometres away at John Travers' uncle's house, kicked in the front door. John Travers and Michael Murdoch were found sleeping in the same bed. Neither of them offered any resistance and neither of them requested a lawyer. Detectives found a knife under the bed. It was bloodstained and in a sheath. This was taken in for evidence. Detectives questioned Travers about the theft of the car, to which he admitted, but denied being involved in any murder. Of course. How stupid, right? Obviously, this lady's been kidnapped in this car, Hmm. and then there's an outcome. You would not admit you took the stupid car. When Michael Murdoch was questioned about the car, he also admitted to his involvement, but denied being a part of any murder, and he took the cops to the spot that the vehicle was stolen from. They all confessed to stealing the car. Les Murphy and Michael Murdoch were given conditional bail. They were both placed under surveillance, and they were followed when they left the station. So the cops planned hmm. every- Yeah. This whole thing was planned. They knew, let them out, we've got the ringleader, <laughs> and we'll just follow them. See so what they do. Yeah. Incredible. While Rosetta was questioning Travis about the stolen vehicle, he pulled out the knife that he'd found in Travis' possessions. Rosetta asked how the blood got onto it. He responded with, I didn't slit that slut's throat. Rosetta was shocked <gasps> as he hadn't mentioned the copy case to Travis. mm Interesting, hey. Yep. Travis continued saying it was the blood of a sheep. Rosetta pretended he'd never heard the gruesome rumour yeah. and asked him to elaborate. Travis' response was, well, you got to eat. I was not say, cut- say, you got to eat. You've got to eat, so I cut its throat. Mm. Okay. Travis signed a statement in regard to the car theft and had to give a blood sample in relation to the rape and other matters in Western Australia, and he was unable to be released. Thank God. Oh, nice. Soon after, Travers was desperate for a ciggy cigarette. He asked to call his aunt to get some. One of the senior detectives, Detective Roll, heard about the request and gave it the go-ahead. <laughs> at first I was quite furious about this, but now I think, you're a bit of a genius, mate. The call to the Travis was made at 5 p.m., and it was a detective that spoke to her, not Travers. Mm. His auntie immediately broke into tears and told the officer that she needed to speak with him about Travis and his behaviour towards women. He hadn't slept for two weeks, and she was sure that Travis was involved in the murder, and she knew she had to talk to the police. Mm. They arranged to meet at Wentworthville Leagues Club. Three detectives arrived at 6pm, and they all met up with the worried aunt. They took her outside, and she confided in them, saying Travis had admitted to the rape in Western Australia to her, and that he carried a knife everywhere he went. He'd confessed heaps of crimes mm. to her, so she kind of knew everything he'd done. The team decided to let the aunt take the cigarettes to Travis and to let them have a regular chat to see if he confessed to anything. On Saturday 22nd, 1986, Detective Roll told the aunt about the stolen vehicle and that it was actually used in the Cobby murder. He told her that all she had to do was listen. Detective Roll briefed her as he walked her towards Travis' cell. Then another officer walked her the rest of the way. She was assured that she'd be safe and officers were there for her. She was being watched all of the time. Her legs were shaking and she gave him the cigarettes. She stayed inside talking to Travis for some time and when she left the detective led her through to a courtyard where she broke into tears and said he did it, he killed her. Detective Brawl held her as she cried and waited for her to get her composure. She told the officer that Travis had whispered to her that they are trying to pin that murder on me. She extended her hand to Travis and while holding his hand, she asked him, did you do it, John? To which he replied, yes. He then asked her to go to his house and get a knife. It had a brown wooden handle and was in the knife drawer. When the aunt asked if it was the knife he had used to kill Anita, he said, yes, it's my best knife and all he cares about is the knife. Yeah. Not the fact that he took an innocent woman's life? No. He he asked her to get rid of a pair of jeans that was faded and covered in blood and to tell Les Murphy to get rid of the stolen car that they'd used to abduct Anita, as police still hadn't found it. Travis told his aunt that it wasn't just him, Les Murphy and Michael Murdoch, who committed the murder. There were two others who participated in the crime, Mm -hmm. and they were Les's older brothers, Michael Murphy, aged 33, and Gary Murphy, aged 28. Both of them had extensive criminal records. Gary Murphy was actually a fugitive who had escaped from prison. When Travis told his aunt about what he had done to Anita, he was laughing, and she had to tell him to stop as it wasn't funny. Travis finished by telling his aunt that the others were all standing around telling him to do his thing. The thing that Travis was referring to was the slitting of the throat, throat yeah. Like he'd done to the sheep before. Uh, Luna's found her squeaky rhino. Uh May hear squeaking from our crazy dog. The aunt's statement was detailed and taken down properly. However, it could be taken as hearsay in court and his word against hers. Mm. All Travis had to do was deny the conversation ever took place. The aunt also had a checkered past with a criminal record and had previously been a heroin addict. And under cross examination, they would be able to make her look like an unreliable witness and diminish her credibility. Detectives could not risk this happening, so they asked her to take it a step further. They asked her to talk to Travis again. She's impressive this lady. Oh, my goodness, she's such a hero. Mm. These clever detectives got a warrant to record the conversation and talked her into wearing a recording device. They then got the uncle on side with the plan. The uncle was only too happy to help when he found out what his nephew had done. That'd be crazy.
1: Be so awful. I mean, how do you even comprehend that that is your like, family member that's done that? No.
0: The couple passed a message on to Les Murphy that Travis had asked him to get rid of the car, and police hoped to find the car. He did not, however, lead them to the vehicle. So detectives went ahead. With the recording idea back then, the recording device was quite big and cumbersome <laughs> and hard to hide. I can imagine. It was like reel to reel, you know. The <laughs> I was old, gonna say. Yeah.
1: I'm just well, I'm just picturing what we used to watch videos on and like everything. So I'm assuming it's gonna be
0: like similar. you're wearing a
1: video <laughs> recorder, like.
0: <laughs> and the other thing, you had to be really close to the person you were trying to record <laughs> to get it to work. You mean like a
1: microphone? <laughs>
0: Yes, <laughs> like our microphones.
1: I'm like an inch off
0: this. And they were concerned that Travis would notice. Mm. Detectives walked the arm back down to the cells, assuring her that she would be kept safe. All precautions had been taken. Travis' first question was, did you take care of the knife and the jeans? She said she took care of the jeans but could not find the knife. So she suggested that he may have already gotten rid of it and he said it was his best knife and he wanted to keep it. The aunt then asked, why did you kill her? And he said it was because Anita had seen them. She'd seen their faces, so they had to do it. I don't believe that. No, he just wanted to do it. He was going to do it regardless. They would have killed her no matter what. Yeah. Travis then gave her a new list of instructions. He wanted to escape from prison. He knew they would detain him for the rape in Western Australia and he wanted to get out. His idea was to derail a train and crash it into the police station.
1: (laughs) 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 so he could escape. I mean, he's really reaching
0: there. And then he realised the stupidity of the plan. Well, I have no words. And told her to make sure Michael and Gary Murphy were at the back of the police station with a couple of shoddies between 3 and 3.30 in the morning before he's caught hearing. Okay. Mm. Glad she didn't pass that one on.
1: I mean, I don't know what's going through this guy's head, but.
0: He thinks right. he's like.
1: I don't know how to He thinks he's work one here. of the Kelly gang,
0: doesn't don't, he? Yeah, he's crazy. He said it's only a skeleton crew at that time and that the oldest cop has the keys. The aunt promised to pass on the escape plan details and left Travers in his cell. Straight after, detectives removed the recording device and assured her that she had done the right thing. However, this was not the end for the aunt. The next day, they asked her to get up, wired up again and have a chat with Michael Murdoch. Once again, she agreed. Murdoch had been under police surveillance since the beginning of the investigation. The police were sure that he could lead them to the other Murphy brothers. Murdoch knew the aunt well, and she approached him, hoping he would spill any missing details. However, he didn't tell her anything, except that he might be leaving town soon. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. Undercover officers once again removed the recording device, and thanked her for her help. They stood by their word to protect her, placing her in the witness protection program, hmm. along with Travis's uncle and their children. I was going to say, everyone just knows her as Aunt X. Yeah, Miss X. Yeah. She was known as Miss X during the investigation. Detectives decided to arrest Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy for the murder. Once again, they broke into two groups. One went to the Murdoch residence where Michael was staying, Unlike before, he did not resist. <laughs> The other group went to the house in Granville where Les Murphy was found in bed with two women. He did not resist once again. Police then went to Travers' house where they conducted a thorough search. Here they found the faded jeans mentioned earlier and a number of knives that were still sent for testing. Back at the police station, Les Murphy and Michael Murdoch were questioned again. They both admitted to being present at the murder of Anita Cobby but claimed not to have taken part or even seen the murder. Of course not. They had similar accounts, so had probably worked on a story together. However, Mm. some parts of their stories did not align. So detectives decided it was time to interview Travis again. I like this. They went into his cell and woke him up at 4.30 in the morning. I love that. And at 4.30 a.m., Rosetta woke him up, stating that he had new information on the murder case of Anita Cobby. He stated that the evidence led directly to him. Travis got up quick and looked Rosetta in the eye, asking, who gave us up? Rosetta did not answer and took him to an interview room to conduct further questioning. It didn't take long for Travis to start talking. He said that the five of them were driving the stolen car along Newton Road in Blacktown. Travis and Murdoch got out of the car and dragged Anita, kicking and fighting. They ripped off her clothing immediately while the car was already in motion. They started punching her in the face straight away. And after a while, they stopped at a petrol station to get fuel.
1: Oh, didn't they steal her
0: money? Yep. In order to pay for the petrol, they took $15 from Anita's purse, holding her down the whole time to stop anyone from seeing her. Once they had the fuel that they needed to commit their horrific act, they drove to Reen Road, where they pushed Anita out of the car and dragged her to a deserted area. Travis gave a full detailed confession as to what they did to Anita, admitting that he was the one that had killed her and when they'd finished torturing her. He signed the confession that took over three hours to finalise. With John Travis, Les Murphy and Michael Murdoch now in custody, they now had to focus their attentions on finding the other two Murphy brothers, Michael and Gary. Kennedy went to the Cobby house to reveal the news of the arrests, wanting Grace and Gary Lynch to hear about it from them, not Hmm. the media. Which is how so many times it happens. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Gary opened the door to hear the news that the three men had been arrested and there was still another two at large. It didn't take long for the media to spread this information and cause major disruption and widespread panic throughout the community. The public were enraged, and rightfully so. Travis Murdoch and Murphy had to be taken to court for their first hearing. The court was next to the police station, and a large group of angry people gathered outside. I was going to say, just put everyone outside, telling them they should die. And-
1: yep, it was bad. <laughs> yep.
0: They all wanted the same thing, for the three of them to hang. And you know what? Oh, let them do it. Oh, in this case, for sure. Let all the them hang. There was a dummy hanging, and people were carrying signs that read, hang the bastards, <laughs> kill them, and I refuse to pay taxes to keep these mongrels in jail. Hang them, but flog them first. <laughs> <laughs> when the three monsters came into the crowd's sight, death threats were shouted at them. They had to be taken in cars to protect them from the angry crowd. To this day, Detective Kennedy remembered this moment and is quoted as saying, it was unbelievable and something I'd never seen in Australia before or since. The crowds were rocking the police cars back and forth, <coughs> trying to get to them. We were driving through them slowly with the mob completely surrounding the car.
1: Crazy. Like, how
0: bad? Hmm. But I understand, I understand it. But... The reading of the charges in the court took only five minutes. Car theft, rape, murder. The angry crowd did not die down. They waited outside all day for any opportunity. Police were now able to focus on finding the other two and release pictures of both of the brothers to the media. <laughs> you would be scared. Oh, like, if that's the reaction to
1: those ones, like, you're going to get the you same would
0: reaction. You so scared. Like, these people want your blood, like. <laughs> yeah. if anybody finds you, you could drop hand yourself in. Pretty much. And the calls started coming in quickly, tip-offs and sightings everywhere keeping the detectives busy with the follow-up. Somehow they just couldn't find them. Then they got just what they were waiting for, a tip-off from a trusty informant stating they were hiding in a house in a suburb of Glenfield, 32 kilometres away from Blacktown. At 10 p.m., more than 50 heavily armed officers. Can you imagine that? That's a lot of police. Surrounded the house in in the tip-off, and they had a police helicopter flying above nearby as a backup. The tactical response team smashed in the door with a sledgehammer and a barrage of police rushed into the house. Michael Murphy was sitting in the lounge room with a woman and her baby. Oh. Yeah, how horrible is that? Mm. Gary was standing behind them. Gary rushed towards the backyard and Michael was going to follow, but Kennedy got to Michael first. You don't think they're going to outrun all these cops. No, <laughs> oh, where you go, mate? <laughs> Kennedy pointed a shotgun at his face and told him to get on the ground. And they're not just cops. They ain't Mm. just got pistols. They've got shotguns. (laughs) This is pretty impressive stuff. Gary made it to the back fence, but several officers stopped him. Somehow Gary's face made it through the back fence (laughs) while officers were trying to stop his escape. This left a big gash in his face that was oozing blood. Gary also wet himself in the ordeal. Pictures were taken of this, and the media got hold of it, making it front-page news. One of the officers stated, I'm glad he wet himself. They will like seeing that inside. The other prisoners will see him as the coward that he is and it won't be pretty for him. Yeah, no. No. Back inside the house, Detective Kennedy and Michael Murphy were down on the ground. He had his boot on Murphy's head and the shotgun was never far away from his face. Kennedy stated later that there was a woman and her baby inside the room and that he wasn't taking any chances and having anything happen to them. Mm. He quoted Murphy as a hardened criminal, convicted on armed hold ups and had escaped from jail. He was dangerous and I was not going to take any chances.
1: Well, they were clearly ready to run, so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You don't want them to get away. You know what they've been a part of. Yeah. Michael and Gary were transported in two different police vehicles. Michael started talking immediately, filling his guts straight away. Minimising his involvement, of course, like they all do. Just so predictable. Like I was there, but I didn't. I didn't do anything. Me, I just like sat in the car. He said he was at the murder, but he did not take any part in any of what happened to Anita. He said he never touched her, and that it was Travis that had killed her. Maybe, like even if that was true,
1: like you were there, yeah, you didn't stop it. You didn't stop. Didn't try and stop. Like it. you were there. That was enough. Yeah. You're as guilty as anything You even got out if the car and you were
0: Yeah involved. The detective listens but made no made no comment. They had to follow protocol and things had to be done right. They needed to do a formal interview and take mm. formal statements. How hard would that be? Keeping your mouth shut. Kennedy was leading the interview of Michael Murphy. Michael started his story at the Duneside Hotel and then at a party that they'd gone to in Windsor. They made their way to the party in the stolen Holden sedan, stayed a while and then left and headed for Doonside. As they were passing through Blacktown, they spotted Anita and he said John Travis was the one that wanted to go after her. Michael Murphy is quoted as saying, "He seen that Anita and she was walking down the street. I was driving. He said to turn around and I'll grab her. And he said to Mick Murdoch, you're going to help me get her in the car. Mick said yes.
1: Oh my god
0: we passed her and pulled up as she walked past john jumped out the car and grabbed her and started dragging her in he how said terrifying to mick, would that be oh, would be so scary he said to mick help me mick jumped out of the car and he held her and dragged her in i drove off and the door was still open john said to her shut up and you won't get hurt she said why are you doing this i'm married he yelled to her again shut up then began giving directions I said I didn't know where to go, so I told Gary to drive. The car was still in motion, but we swapped places while the car was still going. We came to this kind of hill, and the car stalled. I think we were going to run out of petrol. We started the car again. John and Mick pushed the girl onto the floor and told her to be quiet. It was this at this point when they arrived at the petrol station and stole $15 from Anita's purse to pay for the petrol. They continued their planned journey to road in prospect. They punched Anita repeatedly, breaking her nose and both her cheekbones, forcing her to perform fellatio one or five of them. Oh, disgusting. Michael's statement continues, quote, Les said there's a car parked down in front, so Mick said to take her into the paddock. There was a fence. Mick went through the fence. John grabbed hold of her and started pushing her into the fence. Talking about a barbed wire fence. I was going to say, oh, it was barbed wire. Yeah. And from past experience... Oh, boy, huh? oh, my like,
1: gosh. Trying to miss it, yeah, it no. hurts yeah. so bad. Like, yeah. And you're actively trying to miss you. it. Yeah. But when you're getting dragged through that oh. and you don't have a choice but to be dragged through it, Horrible. I can't imagine how many like lacerations and cuts and just blood everywhere oh, she'd be just... and how much pain that would be, and you'd be so terrified.
0: Yeah. Like, oh. This hero went on to say, I lifted up the wire so she could get through. Yeah, I don't even believe you, mate. No. Nah. As she was going through, Mick grabbed hold of her hair and said, don't look at anyone. Hmm. Michael Murphy claimed that he was the only one that didn't rape Anita as he couldn't get an erection. That's because he hasn't got a penis.
1: Like, does that even make it any better? Like, No. Like, you just kidnapped this girl, pretty much just, like, tortured her, Ripped going her through
0: pieces. a bar by a fence. And, like, the whole situation, like, no. They got scared when they saw the headlights of an approaching car. I would say just left. So that's probably those boys that have come looking Oh, looking for looking her. For her. The, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Oh, it's terrible putting all the pieces together. And they forced Anita further into the paddock so that they would not be seen. So sad. It's so sad. He claims that they left her naked and unconscious and started to run, all except John Travers. So at that point, Hmm. Four of them are running away running, yeah. because of the car. It's, it's come. But, but he car, was still there. The car kept going. So his exact words in regards to this were, John sang out to come back. I looked back. I seen John had a hold of her arm. I think he was trying to drag her. The car went straight ahead. So we started walking back up. She looked unconscious and John said, I'm going to cut her throat. I said, no, let's leave her. John said, no, she's seen us. I said, no, come on, leave her. She had a head down, leave her. Michael Murphy claimed he, his two brothers and Murdoch all kept walking, but Travis remained. He claims Travis later caught up to them with blood all over him, telling him what he'd done. Murdoch asked him what it felt like and Travis replied like nothing. Michael Murphy continued, saying they drove back to Doonside to Travis' house. Where they all burned their clothes in a fire in the backyard, he didn't did he? No, That's it's so weird. bizarre trophies, yeah, the only person who did not burn his clothes was Travis. Michael Murphy doesn't even know why so weird it's he's untouchable, I think he' thinks, he's, oh, he's got some complex for sure. untouchable trophies hmm. Michael signed his detailed confession. his account was the most similar to Travis's account, but like the others he still tried to downplay his involvement. Mm -hmm. The main difference in their statements was in regards to the murder, where Travis said the other four were standing around encouraging him, as opposed to Michael Murphy's account of no involvement at all. Michael Murdoch, Les Murphy and Gary Murphy, when interviewed, said they remembered certain parts of the crime, however could not remember others. How convenient. Mm -hmm. They claimed to have a minimal role in the in the whole event, and that they were pressured into undertaking any of the acts they had committed. Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Detective Kennedy stated the following, they all said others did it, and they were and are the ultimate cowards, which Mm -hmm. I suppose was to be expected. Many court appearances were attended in 1986 by the five men in order to prepare for the massive trial ahead. Anita's family stayed strong and continued facing the media every chance that they had in order to ensure that these monsters remain behind bars. So sad. It is. John Cobby, however, was still falling apart. His world had been destroyed and he was not coping at all.
1: I'll tell you what, though. Every time I see, like, I saw, like, 60 Minutes things, oh, my God. I don't know. I think that's why this story gets to me so much, because I've seen every time I see him and he's just shattered. He's still destroyed. Like, yeah, to it's this been day, over years, he talks about, it and you can just see how shattered he is. He's just broken. And there's no coming back from that. Yeah, it wasn't just
0: her life that they took. Oh, it's crazy. It is crazy. After the funeral, which had taken all of his strength to get through, his family decided the best thing for John was to send him away. They thought that remaining in Australia could only do him more harm, as the media coverage was everywhere. John moved to Michigan to get away from it all as he was no longer a suspect. It was rumoured that Kennedy had protected John Cobby from the media by telling them to leave him alone. Oh, he wouldn't have coped. He wouldn't have coped, no. no. When John Cobby had confessed to killing Anita, he believed that he had, not because he could remember doing it, but simply by not being there to protect her. John's friend in Michigan was a psychologist, and it was hoped that he could help John, but this was not the case. No. John spent his days drinking heavily and snorting cocaine and doing heroin. John's friends tried to tell him about the first three arrests in the case to give John peace of mind, but John didn't want to hear about anyone who had hurt Anita. John signed himself into the psych ward and stayed there till another patient who slept above him in a bunk bed cut himself, dripping blood on John's face. Oh, God. Mm. He signed himself out of the hospital as he was shocked by what he'd seen. Yeah. You would have thought that would be a wake-up call, Mm. but it wasn't. He decided he needed to go back to work and get a job, mainly to buy more drugs. When he wasn't using drugs or working, he would go running for hours until every muscle in his body hurt. All he could think about was his wife, Mm. and he felt like a coward for not being there for her. One day he wrote a letter to Catherine, Anita's sister, apologising for not being there. So sad. It wasn't long before the media caught up with him in Michigan, so he moved again to Los Angeles where he broke his foot while drugged up and he couldn't remember how it happened. This was, in fact, a massive wake-up call for John, who knew he had to make changes. He decided to go back home to Sydney and slowly stop drug-taking. He still couldn't work at this stage he was simply too broken. I couldn't even imagine. No. John felt like he was healing, however, but this all came to a halt when the committal hearings began. The media splashed Anita's picture and name everywhere and he couldn't get away from it. His only option was to leave again. He sold one of his racehorses and went to London where he met up with an old girlfriend named Leonie. Leonie had dated John previously prior to Anita. She was actually in love with him. They were together for like a year and a half. They were in love. And um, she couldn't handle seeing him with Anita. Mm. So she'd moved out of the nurses' quarters. So they stopped crossing paths because she just couldn't cope. A few weeks after Anita and John's separation, John ran into Leone at the horse races and she left the country for London shortly after this meeting. Leone called John to check up on him. They had stayed in touch while he was in Michigan. Leone wrote to John asking him to visit in London and he did. They started a relationship, however she felt guilty because of Anita's memory, and he felt paranoid and depressed because of his love for Anita. Leone stated, Throughout the whole time of hearing of Anita's death and being with John, I experienced very strong feelings. I thought, I love John, but I was only there because of what had happened to her. I used to think often of the terrible things that those men did to her. It was like she was in my head all the time too. I used to have a lot of dreams about her as well. It took a long time to rid myself of those obsessive thoughts. John and Leone <laughs> did find happy times together, though. John did find a job training a horses, which was his passion, and after a while John wanted to return to Sydney with Leone, but instead bought tickets to Bali. He'd gone to Bali a number of times with Anita before, and he felt guilty being there with Leone. He was paranoid of what others might think of him. They only paid for John to travel back to Sydney on his own, and that was the end of their relationship. When John returned to Sydney, he returned to work and got a job in a psychiatric nursing unit. He wanted to cut all ties with the terrible past and remove himself the only way he could think of, so he changed his name. He changed his name officially to John Francis. It was not long after this that the trial of the five monsters would begin. He was also, like, shaving his head, dyeing his hair. Yeah. Like, just doing, just didn't want to be, Didn't like want to be recognised. Yeah. Yeah. The long-awaited trial was set down to start March 16, 1987, at Darlinghurst Court. Security was in place and metal detectors were in operation as people walked into the court. There was a heavy police presence and everyone was searched before being allowed to enter the courtroom. Detectives were concerned that Gary Lynch may take justice into his own hands, hmm. and feared that he might act on a statement he'd made previously. Quote, It would only take a second to snap a neck. I mean, I wouldn't blame him. However, Gary remained calm throughout the trial and never in- attempted to enact his feelings. Hmm. The public, however, was seething with outrage and anger. The thought that someone may kill one of the defendants was over- overwhelming. There was a pack mentality that had lost all reasoning.
1: <laughs> well... When when people can do that to another human being, kind
0: of, it's terrifying and scares people. I they guess. just wanted their piece of flesh. Mm-hmm. John Travis surprised everyone in the courtroom by pleading guilty to all of the charges on the first day of the hearing. He was taken to the cells and didn't have to return to the court till the sentence hearing months later. The jury was selected, made up of eight men and four women. They would have been selected like as few women as possible because mm-hmm. women have got you know more empathy and. The prosecutor didn't waste any time in his opening statement. Quote, he picked up the knife and said, there'll be no doubt from the evidence given to you that she was savagely, brutally and savagely murdered, mm-hmm. and you'd be less than human if you were not horrified by, by what you were hearing in this case. I sometimes, that's the
1: thing, though. Like, I just feel s- some people can't handle that stuff, and they just, how do you? They shouldn't be on a jury, yeah. having to be
0: listening to it. Yeah, Like, some people cannot handle that. No. Day two also offered a surprise. It was all over the news that Michael Murphy was in fact a prison escapee. Mm. At the time of Anita's murder, this was common knowledge, but since it was now made more publicly aware and the jury could see it in plain print, the judge was forced to rule a mistrial. The new trial started a week later. Gary Lynch had to testify for a second time, but remained strong and stoic. The media now started to focus on the relationship that one of the defendants, Gary Murphy, had with his lawyer, Uh, Lee Johnson. uh. She had requested a separate trial for Gary as he claimed to have have no involvement in the whole incident, and he gave a new statement saying that he left the group before the abduction, rape and murder of Anita. This was an unsworn statement Hmm. that contradicted his previous statement. He could not be cross-examined on this statement. Lee Johnson put forward that all previous statements had been forced and given under police duress and stated that police had fractured his jaw in two places during the arrest, only two. I think that might have been the problem. (laughs) The fact that she stood by her client and was around his age led to rumours that she was in a romantic relationship with the defendant. In her defence, Lee Johnson had this to say, I was committed to my client no matter what I thought of him. I always have and I always will be. People didn't like that, and I think people resented me for it and treated me unfairly. None of the defendants were likeable. They had extensive criminal records and were not attractive to look at. While the media were focusing on Gary Murphy and Lee Johnson, the defence team were building a strong case against police brutality. Prosecution had more than 40 witnesses, signed confessions, recordings, and extensive evidence. Mm. While the defence team realised there was no chance of the defendants getting off, they hoped to get the sentences downgraded to manslaughter. Yeah, no. In order to get the sentence downgraded, they told the court that the confessions were beaten out of them by police and they had signed them under extreme duress. The defence painted a picture where it was only John Travis who used the knife. And all four of the defendants gave new unsworn statements so that they were unable to be cross examined. Okay. Each of the cowards lessened their own involvement even further and blamed the others for each of the acts of horror that had been perpetrated. Michael Murphy said in his statement, quote, I was not there, and if I was there, I was there for sex, not murder.
1: Well, even then, rotten jail forever.
0: Yep, Les Murphy cried while giving his new unsworn statement and Michael Murdoch said he was there but said he was forced to be. The defence team cross-examined the police about the allegations of police brutality and beating confessions out of the defendants. Detective Kennedy was asked how Michael Murphy had gotten a mark on his cheek after the arrest. I think this is one of the bits I love. I love this bit. Kennedy answered, quote, probably when I had my boot on his head as he lay on the floor. The defense were unable to pin brutality on the detectives involved in the case as their actions were proved to be justified in the circumstances. During the trial, Easter came and went. Kennedy walked into the courtroom and saw four small Easter eggs on the table of the defendants. Ah, this is a bit I hate. (laughs)
1: Ah. But love at the same time. Yeah.
0: (laughs) He asked Lee Johnson who the eggs were for, and she said it was a token of generosity for the defendants. Kennedy smashed the eggs, breaking them into pieces. He said the eggs were a security risk and threw them away. <laughs> Some crumbs remained, and Just on entering desperate. the room, <laughs> Benton's ate the crumbs off the desk and giggled at each other. This group of monsters laughed regularly throughout the trial, not taking it seriously. The defence team was struck their biggest blow when the last witness was called to the stand. Miss X,
2: hmm.
0: Arnie. She'd already appeared at the committal hearing when Travis had tried to leap from his seat and lunge at her. Oh, my God. But he was stopped by detectives. There was concern that this would scare her to back away as a witness and not give evidence at the trial. But it didn't. She's incredible. Mm. She, She appeared and was a star witness. She spoke about visiting her nephew, John Travis, and the recordings and conversations they had had. The recordings were then played. That is undisputable, Mm. directly linking all five of them to have taken part in the entire incident. The jury took much longer than expected, worrying all involved. John Cobby did not attend the sentencing. He changed his name and shaved his hair. He did not want to be recognised. He was having recurring dreams that he entered the courthouse with a black helmet on and two guns, gunning down all five defendants. We've all had those dreams. The verdict was read out the next morning. Tears flowed and they were all found guilty. All of them stood in front of the judge in the dock as he read out loud the sentence to them. Justice Maxwell, quote, The Crown firstly alleged that after assaulting and robbing the deceased and sexually assaulting her, they were conscious the fact that she could recognise them and they therefore agreed amongst themselves that she should be killed. All the others knew that Travers was armed with a knife and they contemplated that Travis would use a knife or might use the knife. She was lying face down when the prisoner inflicted the fatal wounds. The medical evidence established that she was both alive and conscious before the wounds were inflicted. One cannot establish precisely the length of time that she was subjected to the attacks, Too giving
2: long.
0: rise to the injuries as described. But it's open on the evidence to conclude that it was upwards of at least an hour and a half. There is no doubt that apart from the humiliation, degradation and terror inflicted on this young woman, she was the victim of a prolonged sadistic and physical and sexual assault. Wild animals are given to pack assaults and killings, however they do for the purpose of survival and not as a result of a degrading animal passion. Not so these prisoners. They assaulted in a pack for the purpose of satisfying their lost and killed for the prevention of identification. Indeed, frequently they were observed to be laughing, one with the other, and frequently to be sniggering behind their hands. The crime is exacerbated by the fact the victim was almost certainly made aware in the end of her pending death. This was a calculated killing done in cold blood. Therefore, I impose the following sentence. John Raymond Travis, Michael James Murdoch, Leslie Joseph Murphy, Michael Patrick Murphy, and Gary Stephen Murphy, first count of murder, I sent you to penal servitude for life. Their papers were signed, never to be released, and the entire court clapped loudly. I bet everyone did. Everyone would have been ecstatic. If if anything less than that happened, it would have been a a riot.
1: Yeah, like yeah. there is no other sentence they could have given
0: them. No. Not long after the sentencing, Detectives Kennedy, Rosetta and Rawl all received commendations for their efforts in the case from Police Commissioner John Avery. This case has been established as a best practice for the Australian Police Force as police did not just take John Cobby's confession and did not stop searching when there was no direct evidence. The investigation was swift and well-organized, and was over within 22 days from start to finish. After the trial, Travis, Murdoch and the Murphy brothers fell out with each other, and although Murdoch remained loyal to Travis, the Murphy brothers all hated him because he had pled guilty and because he was caught on tape confessing. Travis, Leslie Murphy and Michael Murphy were all sent to Goulburn Prison in 1996. Travis feigned an illness, and while he was being transported to hospital in a van, he tried to hacksaw his way out. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> however, he was caught and taken back to Goulburn. Travis has been in many fights with fellow inmates as well as his as pri- as well as prison officials. Travis, Les and Michael Murphy are all held in Goulburn Supermax Prison and are all banned from contact with each other. They're also banned from having anything to do with other high-profile inmates. Gary Murphy and Michael Murdoch are moved from prison to prison every six months or so to prevent them from building up what prison officials call a kingdom. Oh, really? Yeah. Murdoch became a devoted Christian while in prison, and for a long time he was classified as a medium security prisoner. But this, this got reclassified to maximum security when the media got wind of it. To this day, Travis, Murdoch and Murphy brothers are threatened regularly by other inmates, and they're often held in isolation for months at a time for their own safety. It's said that when Michael Murphy had to appear in court on a separate charge that he was unable to sit down. He'd been assaulted by other inmates who had held him to the ground, inserted a plastic tube into his anus. They then inserted barbed wire into the pipe. Oh, okay. I did not know this about this case. I knew this a long time ago, but I didn't expect to read it.
1: I did not know this. They
0: then removed the plastic tubing, (gasps) leaving the barbed wire inside his body. How apt. (gasps) Now that, (gasps) my friend, is karma. That would be painful. How do you get that out? Grace and Gary were considering applying for compensation and they were in encouraging John Cobby to apply as well. However, John thought of this as blood money. Mm -hmm. Gaynor, his sister, though, believed he was well and truly entitled to it and encouraged him to apply. He ended up applying, and the forensic psychologist could see his pain and suffering, and he was granted $25,000 in compensation.
1: I think everyone in Australia could see that.
0: John also remarried. He met Elizabeth, his future wife, at a New Year's party. She was friends with Gaynor, his sister. John crossed paths with Elizabeth a few months later and they started a relationship and by 1989 they were married. They had two children together and John was able to bring himself to visit Anita's grave in 1997, which was more than 10 years after she had passed away. That same year, John started working as a nurse at Long Bay Jail and stayed employed in this role until 2003. Long Bay Jail had been where Travis had been held during the trial but he'd been moved to Goulburn Jail. When asked if John had gained employment in the prison system to find and kill Anita's murderers, John denied the claims. Mm. However, his sister did not, stating she knew him better than that. She believed he took the role so that he could indeed find them and kill them. John's marriage ended and his children were growing older. One day there was a, a program on TV, that was 60 Minutes, about Anita Cobby and John let out a sob. His son Daniel didn't understand the emotional response from his father, so John had to sit down with his son and daughter and explain that he was John Cobby, Anita's former husband. In 2015, a memorial was held for Anita. John chose not to attend. He stayed home drinking heavily instead. He did, however, check the Facebook site and was touched by all the kind messages and the fact that Anita was still remembered by so many. So he posted a photo of himself and his beautiful Anita. After this, John found it easier to open up and share his story. He was involved in writing a book called Remembering Anita Cobby, which we have to get. Mm. John later changed his name back to John Cobby with the full support of his family. His son changed his last name as well. In 1993, Gary and Grace started a support group called the Homicide Victim Support Group, which aimed to comfort all those in grief. They worked tirelessly for the group until they passed away, Gary in 2008 and Grace in 2013. There's a trauma recovery centre named Grace's Place, where young people and their families can go to get help with their grief through homicide. This is named after Grace Lynch, who was the inspiration to others. Blacktown has changed forever, and the innocence has gone with it. Gary Murphy did suffer injuries after being bashed in Sydney Long Bay Jail, He was attacked by multiple people people in a shower block. He sustained severe head and facial injuries. He was in severe shock and he was medically attended to but was still conscious. He never told police officials who attacked him. Mm. Michael Murphy died in jail aged 66 in February 2019 after being placed in palliative care for his liver cancer. There are many pictures of Anita and her case in the show notes. Under pictures and additional reading, there is all more, also more detail around her wounds, if you would like to know more. Mm. And that's the end of my story. Yeah, that was a horrible case. Absolutely awful. But I kind of think that they keep it alive to stop other people doing it. like Because mm. you're not just telling Anita's story, you're telling mm. what happens to these jerks. Yeah. And hopefully it stops other people from doing these things. Mm. How do you get five people together, like-minded like that, that commit an uh, act yeah, horror like that? That's
1: one of those cases that just gets me. Uh, yeah.
0: Rest in peace, Anita, Your beautiful soul.
1: I know, and she was doing good for other people, like helping people. She was just pure pure innocence mm-hmm. and
0: goodness. That's, I swear, every time
1: we do a cover a case, you're like, this person was amazing. They were sweet, kind. They were doing good work, helping other people. And they get murdered. That's
0: crazy. Well, I hope you guys all rot in hell. No, not the listeners. Not the listeners. You filthy <laughs> monsters in jail. I was like, wait, what? And then I was like, oh, she means so. <laughs> you guys don't go rotting in hell. <laughs> thanks for listening (laughs) see you next week bye Bye. thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the podcast you can follow us at facebook at solved unsolved or spooky on twitter at hashtag or solved instagram at solved unsolved or spooky you can email us at podcast at solved unsolved or spooky.com and if you want to support the show go to podfan and find Solved, Unsolved or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.